my name is Fritz Hager. I'm the executive pastor here at Bethel. And if you don't know what that job title means, what it means is I do everything that Ross tells me to do. And this Sunday, he told me to preach uh, because he's in Turkey and he will be back next week. But this week, it's my pleasure to be the one who gets to share uh, the second half of Romans 5 with you. But before we do that, I want to take you back in time uh, to the 1970s, which is where I grew up as a kid. In the 1970s, before the millennials eliminated what's called an elimination game from schools, um, we used to play these games uh, like dodgeball, this great life sport called dodgeball. And there was only one person generally left at the end. And so that's what an elimination game means. But the way this often worked was the coach or the teacher would pick two captains. And the captains would go stand out in the middle of the gym. And they would pick their teams alternating. And, you know, they did what captains are supposed to do. They're supposed to look for who's the fastest, who can throw the hardest, who has great hands, who can always catch the ball. And that's who they pick first. And everybody else gets picked last. Kind of the Ricky Bobby school. If you're not winning, you're losing. Um, So there are two kinds of kids. Those who got picked first and those who got picked towards the end. Sometimes you'd get lucky and your friend, your best friend would get named a captain. And he might actually show mercy on you and pick you before you really deserve to be picked. But other times... You would be one of the last ones or maybe even the last one who was picked. And I know it's hard for you to believe this. And I actually had people come and and challenge me on this after second hour. But I used to be one of the kids who got picked last. I was tall and skinny for most of my life. And now I'm just tall. Uh, But... When I was, in fact, I told someone, I said, when I finished my first summer at West Point, I was 125 pounds and 6'1". So yeah, let that sink in. I was that tall, gangly, awkward kid all the way through middle schools. And so I was usually one of the last ones picked. And so um, I was on some bad teams. In fact, I played soccer as a kid. And you know what my number on my jersey was? Zero. (laughs) Not the cool double zero, just zero. Um, so, but after elementary school, I did find my way onto some good teams in high school, West Point, the Army, even in business, and especially here at Bethel. We have a great team in place. A good team has a clear mission. They have shared values. They encourage and help one another. It's great to be on a good team. But I've also been on some bad teams, uh, bad teams that were not successful. Uh, bad teams that had different rules for different people, bad teams where someone had motives that actually worked against the team instead of trying to help that team out. And so, like you probably, once I figured out I was on a bad team, I wanted off the team as fast as I could. So have you ever been on a bad team? How does that feel? It drains the life out of you. Every day is a burden to go and be a part of that team. A team marked by disappointment, dashed hopes. 
And our passage today puts all of us on one of two teams. In fact, everyone who has ever lived is on one of these two teams. And unlike elementary school where you start off not being on a team and get chosen to be on a particular team, our passage today shows us that we start off on one team, all on the same team, and that's Adam's team. As we read the text today, we're going to get a contrast between two captains, Adam and Jesus. And we're going to explore the benefits on, or the consequences of being on Adam's team or being on Jesus' team. And so before we get into the text, I want to ask you this one question. It's the most important question in your life, and that is, whose team are you on? Our text today is Romans 5, 12 through 21. It's Romans 5, 12 through 21. And as you turn or click there, I want to orient you to how we'll spend the rest of our time together. I'm going to read this entire passage. It's kind of long. And then we'll walk through it. And we're going to be contrasting captains. Two men, two acts, two results. And then we'll conclude with the implication for our lives. And then Todd will come back up. And close us out. So Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one, man's, or that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the second half of Romans 5 today, our text. Todd preached a great sermon last week on the first half of chapter 5, which was kind of a break from the first three chapters, which is a big heavy dose of how sinful we all are and how bad our situation really is. Leading to Romans 3.23, where we hear, we've all sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. We missed the mark. We didn't meet God's standard. And that's the bad news. 
But the good news is in the next verse, verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. And that's the good news. And the first half of chapter 5, as Todd preached last week, is about the benefits of receiving the good news. It changes your spiritual position because you're justified before God. It sees you through the hard times. It knows who you are and it gives you freedom from legalism. So let's look at the second half of chapter 5. And we'll see that verse 12 starts with the word therefore. And this therefore keys the answer to the question from both a historical and a theological perspective how the good news became to be such good news for you and me. How the good news became um, such good news for us. So verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul lays out a chain of events, kind of the sin-death chain. Sin entered the world through one man, who we're about to learn is Adam, and, the, and that sin brought death. And death, because uh, sin is contagious, spread to all men because all sinned. This isn't really new information for those of us in the church or even Paul's reader in the church at Rome. But we all understand that the punishment for sin is death and that everybody has sinned. But right after the therefore is the phrase, just as, which means Paul is setting up his comparison of how two things are similar or alike. So the sin-death chain is the first part, and what normally comes next is the second part of the comparison. But look at verse 12, what comes at the end of verse 12. That line there is a dash, not a hyphen, which indicates Paul is pausing in this just-like comparison. And then Paul spends the next five verses on kind of an aside, helping us understand more about this sin-death chain and how it's not just like the free gift before going back in verse 18 and starting the just-as comparison again. So, what do we learn from Paul's aside? Let's look at verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Paul is talking historically about the roughly 2,500-year period of time between when Adam sinned in the garden in Genesis 3 and Moses received the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai. Now, as we go forward, this is going to challenge some of our cultural assumptions about the relationship of the individual to the whole. Paul is saying here, is even though God had not revealed all of his requirements of righteousness, there was still sin in the world. So how can there be sin if there's no violation of God's law or of his revealed requirements? How's that fair? As an American, I don't want to be held accountable for something I didn't do or some requirement that I didn't know about. But if we go back to the first chapter of Romans, Paul answered that question already back in chapter 1, 
starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their own, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So in general revelation, looking at creation around us, we should know that there is a God who exists, who is powerful and holy, and we should honor Him. And when we don't, we are without excuse. We have no defense against the judgment, which is why verse 14 starts with, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So there is sin, even without specific requirements to violate, and death, the just consequence of sin, reigns. But how does that fit with the last phrase of this verse, but sin is not counted where there is no law? Not counted not reckoned, and yet death, the punishment for sin, reigns. All sinned, all those folks died, and yet sin is not counted. How does that work? I think what Paul is saying here is it's not reckoned or accounted for them on an individual basis. And as Americans in a largely individualistic culture, we almost always think of sin as personal sin. It's something that I do that doesn't meet God's requirements. But the Bible, written to a more corporate or communal culture, sees another type of sin described in this passage. I want you to think of this as group or corporate sin, not personal or individual sin. But let me come back to the concept of group sin after we look at 14 through 17. I think it'll be clearer then. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Paul is distinguishing between two types of sin, Adam's and everyone else's that lived before the law was revealed. Adam's sin was a direct violation of a revealed requirement of God, Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. He ate it and brought death on himself. Everyone else sinned by not giving, the God, not giving God the honor he deserved, acknowledging his divine attributes and eternal power, Adam transgressed in that he violated a specific command. Everyone else sinned by not giving God the glory that he deserved. But the text also says Adam was a type of the one to come, later identified as Jesus. A type is a, a pattern. Um, and so how is Adam a type or a pattern of Jesus? The simple answer is that in verse 15 and 16, they lay out that Adam did one thing. He sinned, and that messed it up for the rest of everyone else who followed him. And Jesus did one thing, 
that fixes it for all those who would receive the gift. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. This is the first of Paul's two contrasts between the one act of Adam sinning and the one act of Jesus dying on the cross. This first contrast is one of degree. Adam trespassed, the word Paul uses to refer to this specific violation of a revealed command of God, and many died. Compared to Jesus who died and the free gift of grace abounded for many. When I first read this, I was thinking about numerically. Adam sins and brings death to everyone who ever would live. Billions of people, maybe a hundred billion people right now. Who knows how many it will be before the Lord returns. So how is it then that much more that the Son of God, who steps out of heaven and is born as a man, lives without sinning, fulfills the requirements of a law, and is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, acting as our representative, our king, how does that make it possible for us to receive the free gift of eternal life through faith? Because when we see over human history, it looks like Christians are in the minority. So Adam sins and everybody dies. Jesus dies on the cross, and how is it much more than from a numerical sense? And so I think it's not the difference in the number of people, it's the difference in the amount of sin. So Adam sinned once and messed it up for everybody. Jesus dies on the cross, and he doesn't cover one sin, he doesn't cover one person's sin. He covers every sin committed by every person who ever lived. Everyone who's ever lived. But with Jesus, for those who receive the gift, their accumulated sin is all forgiven through his one act of obedience. But I think Paul's main point here isn't really a numerical one. It's a qualitative difference. Adam will kill and Jesus will save. What Jesus did is more miraculous. It's more amazing. It takes more power to cleanse rather than corrupt, to bring to life rather than to kill, to heal rather than harm, to straighten rather than to make crooked. So the quality, the miracle of what Jesus did in undoing is greater than the devastating effectiveness in which Adam killed everyone who followed him. So let's, take, let's think about this from the standpoint of laundry, something we have a lot of in my house. Um, and this week, Serena and I were at a Halloween party, and uh, I spilled some uh, grape juice on my uh, white sweater. It's kind of a winter white sweater. It's one of my favorite sweaters. It's an old West Point sweater. And I had a nice crimson stain right here, which for some reason I seem to be catching more stains right here than I used to. 
But I immediately looked at that. I said to Serena, I said, oh, that's going to leave a mark. I didn't think there was any way I was going to get that stain out. And so I went home and I got a cup of water. I threw it in the microwave and heated it up to boiling. And I put the, the sweater, the part of the stain on the sweater in this cup. And I let it soak and soak and soak. And it was still there. And so um, I pulled it out and I got some shout. And I sprayed about 10 times more shout than the direction said. And I put it back in the cup and let it sit and stain was still there. So I pulled it back out. I've put more shout on it. And now I just rubbed and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed until I got it to the point where I thought, okay, this will come out in the laundry and ran it through a really super hot sanitizing cycle. And guess what? It came out and I held it up. I was really proud of myself. And then I realized I can see through it now uh, because I rubbed all those bad crimson threads right out of my sweater. But it's much easier to stain than it is to clean. It took no skill, it took no effort, it took no work for me to stain that sweater. And yet it was much harder to undo. And that's Paul's point, is it's much harder to undo what Adam easily did. And so the second contrast here is one of consequence. Look at 16 and 17. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Different consequences. Adam trespassed and death reigned. Second time, Paul's described sin and death, not just as an act, but a power or force. Death was all-powerful. It was inescapable. It was reigning until Jesus acted. And look at the consequence of his act, his death on the cross there in verse 17. I want you to look and see who is reigning now. You might think it would say Jesus. Because we know he is king and he is reigning. Or it might say, or life reigns, since that's the opposite of death. Or maybe that grace reigns, like it says later in the passage. Or that peace reigns. But Paul says, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, they will reign in life. Through the one man, Jesus. So the power of Jesus is so great, His grace is so abundant that not only is death reversed, but in the future, those who have received the gift will reign in life at some point after the Lord returns. So now before we get to verse 18 where Paul goes back to his original point of, of how these two things are similar in verse 12 where we had that dash, I want to talk about the concept of group or personal sin. Corporate, I'm sorry, corporate sin, which is different or distinguished from personal or individual sin, which most of us kind of understand. So one way to explain why everyone has sinned after Adam is the concept of original sin. That Adam's sin changed human nature. He bent it away from God so that all of his descendants are born into a a natural state of rebellion against God. That we are sinful by nature. 
We cannot help but sin when we're in that state. So from a Western sense, that's really not fair. You know, as an individual, uh, if I can't help it but sin, why am I being punished? This original, this view of original sin is true, but I don't think it's really the focus of our text here today. The focus of this passage is actually something worse and something more offensive than original sin from our perspective in an individualistic culture. This passage shows that Adam's single act of sin qualifies us all by itself for judgment, for death. Look at verse 15. Many died through the one man's trespass. Verse 16, judgment following one trespass, one single trespass. Verse 17, death reigned through that one man. So how is that? So there are two ways to explain how we get punished for Adam's sin. And the first is the natural or ancestral view of sin. And I'll try and keep this PG-13 so you parents can go explain loins to your kids at lunch today. But this is the view that we, all of us, were physically present with Adam when he sinned. Y'all remember that? No, I don't remember that. I didn't do that. But remember in Hebrews 7, the story of Melchizedek. He was a priestly king that lived during the time of Abraham. And the writer of Hebrews says that Levi, Moses' brother, who became the first priest for the nation of Israel, 500 years after Melchizedek and Abraham met, that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. Reading beginning in verse 9. He paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So, physically present in Adam's loins when he sins and we get punished. I know, that doesn't seem fair, but that's the natural or ancestral view of sin. The second way to describe corporate sin, and this works a little better in our Western culture, is called the federal view. And this is the belief that Adam is our federal head as the first human. In fact, the word for man or human in Hebrew is Adam. He represents us. He is our father and therefore our representative. The text doesn't say that the first human sin, which was Eve's, is what set this chain of judgment off. It's the sin of Adam who is the head. We see this idea elsewhere in Scripture where the group is punished for the sins of the head. You might remember the story of Achan. It's when the nation of Israel, Israel is going to uh, destroy Jericho. And God says, I'm going to give you the city of Jericho and I want you to destroy everything in it except take the gold and the silver and put it in the Lord's treasury. And so he does what he promised. He gives them the city. The city is destroyed. And one guy named Achan 
takes some gold and silver for himself. And so the next time the Israelites go to battle, 36 people get killed. And Joshua's like, Lord, what, why, why did these people get killed? What's going on? And he says, Achan violated my commandment. So for starters, 36 people who were obedient to the Lord, didn't take the gold and silver, they died because Achan sinned. And then you know what happens? It makes us Westerners really uncomfortable. They gather up everything that Achan owns, pile it up in one place. They bring his whole family there, and then they stone them, all of them. And then they burn them. And then, in case the job's not done, they pile stones on top of them. All those innocent people punished for what the head did. Same thing happens in the nation of Israel when David, their king, sinfully calls for a census to count all his people. And what happens? 70,000 Israelites die. Not because they ordered the census, but because their king, their federal head, committed the personal sin of ordering that census. So if you remember way back at the beginning of the sermon, we said I'd come back to finally answering why Paul said sin is not counted where there is no law, and yet death reigned. Death reigned because of Adam's corporate sin, his ancestral or natural sin, the federal sin as the head. So why the aside on this doctrine of sin? Well, for starters, it's in the text. It's the, it's the best way to explain the text that's before us. But why is it important to share this doctrine? The first reason is, I believe, the more fully we appreciate how bad the bad news is, the more we understand how hopeless we are and how condemned we are apart from Jesus, the more we should appreciate His grace. But second, because that same part of us, that same reaction, that same instinct in us that wants to shake our fist and say, that's not fair. I didn't do anything to deserve this. Is that you? Did you feel that? I know I did. But that's the same part of us that would reject grace. It's the same part of us that would say, I've got some goodness in me, so why don't we take my goodness and Jesus, you can just add your goodness to mine. Just fill in my gaps, Jesus. But the message of this text is crystal clear. The only way we become righteous is by receiving the free gift. The natural part in us says we somehow, some way need to earn this. And it's the same thing that can corrupt our Christian life by pursuing legalism, our performance to earn some sort of credit with God. So Jesus is the team captain, and he's choosing people from Adam's team, and he's not looking for the best athlete. 
He's not looking for the fastest runner, the one who can really sling that little purple ball. He's not choosing based on our goodness or our potential to serve Him. So for some of you, that's a a great disappointment. And for others, it's a marvelous relief. You get on Jesus' team because you choose to receive the gift. So let's go back to verse 18 and see how Paul concludes this comparison, which he does in verse 18 and restates it again in 19. So verse 18, Therefore, where we started, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One act, one trespass resulted in condemnation for all men. One act, Jesus' death on the cross, an act of righteousness led to justification, being declared righteous despite a pile, a mountain of personal sin, despite being in Adam when he sinned, despite our federal head, Adam, sinning and we being held accountable, we are graciously declared righteous because we are in Christ. No longer in Adam, but in Christ. And this verse doesn't preach universalism that everyone is saved Because everyone is justified because Paul has already narrowed it down, narrowed the work of justification in verse 17 to those who would receive the gift. And then he restates the comparison just a little differently. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Notice it doesn't say they chose to be sinners. It says they were made sinners sinners. They were made sinners by Adam. And because of context, we can infer that Paul is referring to Adam's one act of disobedience and comparing it to Jesus's one act of obedience, his death on a cross. But Paul shifts to the future. Many will reign, indicating that eschatologically when Jesus comes back or when we die and we are fully sanctified and we are glorified that we will be made in reality what we have already been declared and that is righteous. And then finally, in case you haven't gotten the point, Paul restates and summarizes it again in verse 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this would have shocked the Jewish readers who who viewed the law as life-giving. And Paul's point here is different than he'll make in chapter 7, that knowing something is wrong uh, stirs us up to make to want to do that very thing. His point here is that like Adam who knowingly violated a commandment of God, turning that sin into a trespass, which intensifies it, it magnifies it, and it makes the punishment more severe. And yet, grace abounded even more. Despite how offensive that was, despite the fact that we knew what the requirement was and we willfully failed to meet it, God's abundance grace covers it even more. 
So let me summarize up to this point as Paul ends this paragraph and I try and end the sermon here. Paul contrasts two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, both fully human, both federal heads, both captains of their teams. Contrasts two acts. One was disobedient and chose not to believe God to break his commandment to transgress. The other was obedient, fulfilling the law throughout his entire life, leading to his death on the cross. Two men, two acts, two results. Adam's sin brought death to him and all of us. And death became the ruling, the controlling, the reigning power until the death of Jesus. And that inaugurated the reign of grace, the reign of righteousness, the reign of peace with God, and made possible the free gift of eternal life if we receive it. It's the result that's the focus of verse 21. Just as sin, as a power now, not in an act, just as sin reigns in death, grace might, or some translations read, will reign through Jesus Christ. And because of that, we will have eternal life. And until then, we can look forward to that glorious day when death will finally and fully be defeated where the simultaneous reign of death and life will end and death will have no power and will reign no more. So I started by saying we're all on a team and we start on Adam's team and that's a bad team. It not only sucks the life out of you, it's a dead team. Everybody on that team dies. Everybody on that team has no choice but to sin. Everybody on that team is hopeless. We all started there. And if you're still there, our prayer is today that you would receive the free gift. You do that, you can be on team Jesus. It's a team ruled by grace, not having to earn it. It's a team ruled by life not death. It's a team ruled by perfect fellowship with the God who created us. So I'll end the same way I began, which is to ask, which team are you on? If you're on Adam's team, then my prayer is that you'd receive the free gift of eternal life, of peace, and of this abundance grace that the passage talks about, this overflowing, overwhelming grace through trusting or relying on Jesus as your king to supply you with the righteousness you need. To stop striving to achieve that which is not achievable. And if you're already on Team Jesus, my hope is that by understanding just how hopeless you were, just how bad off you were, just how lost and hopeless you were, before you ever did anything that expressly violated one of God's commandments, that you would appreciate anew, like the first time, that abundant and overflowing grace poured out for you and for me, and that you'd leave this church today eager to be a conduit of that grace 
to a dying, dead, hopeless world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you.